Hey everyone! Did you know Neurodiverging now offers a free support group for autistic parents, monthly free live classes on neurodivergence-related topics, and a coaching corner twice a month on Instagram? Learn more and sign up for all of our learning opportunities at neurodiverging.com slash upcoming events. Every day, scientists are learning more and more about how human brains work and how many of us don't fit into the old-fashioned understanding of how brains should work. But a lot of ideas about parenting and familial relationships still need to catch up to the reality of human variation. Neurological differences are natural, profoundly valuable parts of being in a community together and in being part of a family. Whoever you are, wherever you are in your journey, I am here to explore with you. We are all in this together. Welcome to Neurodiverging. friends, and welcome back to Neurodiverging. Danielle Sullivan here, and I'm your host. Today, my guest is Lois Letchford. Lois is a well-known literary specialist who recognized her learning difference at the age of 39 while teaching her second son to read. She then trained to become a literary specialist and encourages learning through experience and context. Lois is the co-founder of the Teaching Students with Dyslexia Writing and Reading Program, and her first book, Reversed, a Memoir, is out, telling the story of her son's dramatic failure in first grade and how she and he together turned it around so that he's now got his PhD. Lois and I had a wide-ranging, enthusiastic conversation about her experience teaching her son to read, the psychology behind how children learn, and how schooling and education can cause trauma when it's approached from the wrong mindset. We got along famously, and I had so much fun recording this interview, and I learned so much, so I hope you'll enjoy it too. Want special access to the patrons-only after show and many other perks? Consider pledging a dollar, five dollars, or ten dollars a month to fund the Neurodiverging podcast. Find out more and pledge today at Patreon.com/slash/Neurodiverging. Hello, Lois. Thank you for joining us on Neurodiverging. I'm really, really excited to meet you, and uh, thanks for being here today. Danielle, I'm delighted to be here. I love talking about all sorts of things with neurodiversity <laughs> and particularly related to literacy. Yes. And Lois and I have been talking back and forth online for a little bit, and uh, I'll just plug it right away. She's got a fantastic series on YouTube. Is it Learning is Trauma, right? I'm putting it in the in the description below. You have to go watch it. It's so good. She has so many good things. We're going to talk about so many good things good things today. So I'm really excited. Yeah. Did I get the title of that right? Learning as trauma. Yes. Yeah. I learning as trauma. trauma. Yeah. 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 So Lois, can you start off by telling us a little bit about what got you into literacy in the first place? Cause it's a really good beauty story. I think. Children, <laughs> children is the quick answer. You know, I, 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 I grew up reading words, not comprehending. And not for one moment did anyone ever say to you, you're dyslexic. In my mind, I'm just dumb. Despite that, I married a man who I married very well. <laughs> Congratulations. 
I married a man who has PhD or he got his PhD after we were married. So, you know, he's been at the top of academic the world. And so you don't think anything about it. You have these children. The first one is quick, can do anything, speaks at the speed of light, thinks at the speed of light, boom, off he goes, he's fine. The second one comes along and he's the absolute opposite. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, he had ear infections from the ages of 8 to 18 months Mm -hmm. and I didn't realise the implications. My son also had ear infections during that time and we are still dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. No one tells you. Yes, there are brain implications. Mm -hmm. The way the brain grows because it's not hearing normally. So that's and that's an interruption there. And we didn't know that I would be dyslexic. And I only discovered that when I'm starting to work with Nicholas. Nicholas goes to school in 1994 and he fails. Mm-hmm. On day six of school, the teacher, I said, how's he doing? And she throws up her hands and said, well, I don't know how I'm going to cope with him this year. Mm-hmm. You know, and Nicholas is biting his fingernails, wetting his pants and staring into space. Mm-hmm. End of the year, we get him tested after a year of this. And, you know, he can read 10 words. He's got no strengths and he's got a low IQ. Mm-hmm. Disaster. Because my husband's a professor, he has study leave in the second half of 1995. And he, is, he goes to Oxford for six months. And, of course, we take along. Mm-hmm. We take Nicholas out of school. Because, you know, he's in a foreign country, the people speak differently, and I asked him if he wanted to go to school, and the blood just dropped from his face. Yeah. No, we're not doing that. So I I was prepared for that, and I took this series of books called Success for All, isolated words on the page. He's meant to decode the word, say the word. You do that at the beginning. By by the time we've got to the end of the page, forget it. No Mm -hmm. pictures. No sentences, no context. Yeah. And my mother-in-law was with me and she said, Lois, put away what's not working and make learning fun. Mm -hmm. And I'm there. You know, there's no internet. (laughs) (laughs) You can't get to the library because you've got three children. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? And I thought, what can I do? And I thought, Nicholas can see patterns and he can rhyme words. Mm -hmm. I'll write a little poem for him, a little rhyming poem about mugs and bugs and tug and lug, it was transformative because I read it to him. We had fun reading it together. We found the rhyme with it, then he illustrated it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and because I wrote one poem, then we had the next and the next, and, the, and it, it was just amazing. And Nicholas, instead of being stressed and instead of me being, oh, he can't remember anything, he's excited to learn and his shoulders are down. He's relaxed. He's loving it. And then I wrote a poem about Captain Cook because you've got Cook, Look and Booker's Rhyming Words. And I wrote this poem about Captain Cook. Captain Cook had a look. Uh, it, it took, Captain Cook had a notion there's a gap in the map in the great big ocean. He took a look without the help of any book, hoping to find a quiet little nook. And with that little poem, you've got, you know, this small number of words, but phenomenal ideas. Lots of options for learning just in that couple of lines. Yeah. And, and I wanted Nicholas to walk with Captain Cook as Captain Cook saw it, seeing a brand new world. Mm unlike how I was taught. And while we're looking at something or other, all of this, 
Nicola said to me, who came before Captain Cook? And I said, Nicholas, that's easy. That was Christopher Columbus. And who came before Columbus, he says. And my mouth hits the ground because I've never thought about that. Mm-hmm. And here's this kid with supposed low IQ asking these phenomenal thinking questions. Mm -hmm. And the moment he said that, I thought, I know he doesn't have a low IQ. Mm -hmm. And I needed to see that. And because we were in Oxford, we actually found the book of maps that Columbus had. Mm -hmm. And they were printed in 250 AD. So the excitement of learning and the learning went not just from our classroom, went from our class to the streets and to everything we were seeing. And, and it was just mind-boggling what happened in that short time. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we returned to Australia, our home. We're, Nicholas was born in Australia. And I meet the lady who'd done the testing. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I'm just so excited about all that Nicholas has learned. We've had so much fun and la, la, la. Great, isn't it? And she's, she's there. She puts her hands on her hips and she says, well, I've spoken to the reading teacher and he's gone backwards. And, in fact, he's the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching. Uh. <laughs> oh, I, you know, I can laugh now. How can you get? I, I just want to know how you can become a teacher and think of children in such a limited. <laughs> diagnostician. Yeah. The diagnostician. Thankfully, she wasn't teaching. But even the reading teacher saying he's gone backwards. Yeah. I left because I don't think quickly. I can't say anything. I just was flabbergasted. Oh, no. You come back and later you have all the ideas in your head of what you should have said. But in the moment. And I did go back to school and I said, I don't care what you call him, mm-hmm. but if he is the worst child you've seen in 20 years of teaching, don't expect him to learn like everybody else. Yeah. And that really, her words, as hurtful as they were, gave me the power to continue to change the teaching. Mm-hmm. And this is the part I want to talk to you about. <laughs> and that very afternoon, the reading teacher sends Nicholas home with his sight words. You know, those words kids yeah. just learn. She's now giving him 10 words, not 20. She gave him 20 once. Now she's giving him 10. And he knows eight of the 10 words. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know the word now and he doesn't know the word saw. Mm-hmm. And she's giving him the same two sentences she gives every other child in her care. Mm-hmm. No differentiation. Whatever. Yeah. But the word saw, she wrote, I saw a cat climb up a tree. And the second sentence was even better. I saw a man rob a bank. Nicholas read, I saw a cat. No, no, he said, I was a cat. No, no. I had a cat and I said, and he just handed me the paper. Yeah. Took me a while to work out what was going on. But this became the driver for me to become a reading teacher because when I'll tell you what happens next but I became a reading specialist and I go back and do my studies one of the papers that was given to us in our books was called beyond the deficit theory Mm -hmm. and the deficit theory is when a child fails we say look at that child look at their IQ look at their home background look at their socioeconomic background look at look at and we fail to look at the teaching Mm -hmm. 
And this is exactly what happened with Nicholas. Look at him. He's not a very smart kid. That's why he can't get it. Mm -hmm. And they fail to look at the teaching. What is wrong with the sentence? I saw a cat climb up a tree. I saw the word saw has three meanings. Mm -hmm. The teacher has only given the abstract meaning. Children on the autism spectrum see concretely. What is he doing? I saw the cat, I cut the cat. Mm -hmm. No, that doesn't make any sense. And he doesn't read up a tree because you've got to read a sentence and make sense of it. I saw a cat. You can't go on. That doesn't make sense. Yeah. And, you know, I never was a cat. And this is where I get upset. We as a family had spent six months in another country. Mm-hmm. Every day we were seeing new things. And that teacher could not be bothered writing a sentences from Nicholas's own experience. Mm-hmm. How do we fail? We fail because we, we fail to look at the teaching and then we give children labels. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think your point about that concrete learning is really important too. I was just reading a book the other day about um, how neurotypical people can better communicate with neurodivergent people, especially autistic people. And one of the things they were harping on uh, was that whether that language you're using is concrete or not, because there are so many words just like saw that mean multiple things. And uh, I am not dyslexic. I am autistic. I am relatively intelligent. I have degrees. I still get stuck on words that mean multiple things sometimes, um, even as an adult. So for a child who's struggling in other ways, it's just amazing how inflexible uh, some educators and some administrations can be with changing, giving us different opportunities to learn and working with us specifically. It's even being aware these Mm -hmm. words cause a problem. Yep. Mother of a 16-year-old came to me 12 months ago. Mm -hmm. They have spent $100,000 on education and her son was not reading. Mm -hmm. What do I do? The first thing I do is say to the boy, give me a sentence with the word T-O. It's Mm -hmm. one of the first 10 sight words. And he says, I've got two lizards the same. Mm -hmm. That's the number two he's given me. Give me a sentence with the word for, F-O-R. I've got four grey shark's teeth, he said to me. Mm -hmm. Why can't this child read? Because the foundations of understanding language, understanding concrete versus abstract, has not been taught, Mm -hmm. even though he was in a school for learning disabilities. Yeah. It's not, oh, I get cranky. Oh, no, I'm with you. You're not alone. Yeah, I mean, you said so many so many things I want to talk about just in that beginning of it, but we we should we should keep oh, moving. That is so- fine. Let's talk about that because <laughs> this is this is the start of the story. This is where mm-hmm. it all happens. Forget the rest. This yeah. is critical. Mm-hmm. What are you going to say? I don't but, want to talk anymore. Oh, <laughs> that um, just as a parent who has struggled with. Uh, Oh, so many things. I'm like, where do I even start? So that I've had a similar experience with the school system, not with diagnosticians or educators who were so uh, lacking child-centeredness, 
And uh, I feel like they really did want to teach to the best of their ability. And they were there for the kids in a way that it sounds like your school wasn't, but still this idea that everybody should learn the same way. And that when we modify our education for students, we just, we make it like, like you said, changing the sight word list from 20 to 10. So still giving them the same work, but just making it smaller or giving them more time or so the accommodations are there to some degree, and I'm sure they help some students, but they don't change the work based on the student's point of view. And just like it's, which is literally just exactly what you just said. I'm just repeating what you just said, but it just struck such a chord in me because I have struggled as an adult. I struggled in school with this and didn't realize for years that it was the school's problem, not my problem. Like I'm an, <laughs> a capable, intelligent person. Um, but you, you know, I do need uh, less abstract um, information. I have to ask a lot of clarifying questions sometimes. I do need people to give me time to think and to process and then to respond. And that's not something that schools tend to, and I, you know, I'm only familiar with the United States schools. I wish it were different in other countries, but maybe it's not. It's not something that schools tend to promote. They don't teach for the child. Um, and especially now in our very test-driven culture where we're just supposed to be memorizing facts instead of learning skills. Yes. I see you nodding. So yeah. (laughs) Which is, Mm -hmm. which is what I was able to do with Nicholas. Yeah. There's a, there's a podcast by professor Pam Snow talking to a guy called, I'm going to say Jake, I can't remember Jake Downs. I'll find it and put it in the notes for folks listening. Uh, It's phenomenal because Pamela Snow, she's Australian, but she's also, she's a speech language pathologist. Mm -hmm. So that's her background. And she said, children need to know why. Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this? And that's what I gave Nicholas in Oxford. Yeah. We're not learning letters and sounds. We're learning about Captain Cook. Mm -hmm. Ah, because if I read to Nicholas, I lost him. Mm -hmm. And I had to take all that information, put it into poetry form. Yeah. And and we forget those things. Yeah. I homeschool now. I started because of the pandemic, but it's now become more like unschooling because I want the kids to follow their own interests and their own projects. And they both do so much better. Um, And just the small amount of trauma (laughs) that my eight-year-old went through in the two years, I guess he was in public school with really good educators who had his best interests at heart. He was still traumatized, especially around reading because he, uh, I, I don't think he's dyslexic. We're considering evaluation, but I'm pretty sure he's just one of those kids who's going to pop a little bit later. Um, but, uh, he noticed that he was behind mostly the girls in his classroom. I think he's at the same level as most of the boys in his classroom. Um, were, but he felt like he wasn't a quote unquote good reader. And he would say this to me and he would get upset and he would cry. And from my perspective, as obviously not an educator, but someone who can do research and figure out what's normal for his age group, he seemed like he was reading fine, honestly, he was doing what he needed to do, but he wasn't as good as the more advanced readers in his class. And he had just internalized that to be a bad reader instead of a totally average (laughs) Like, you know, an intelligent, but totally average first grade reader. Um, And that was so frustrating as a parent 
that he had already internalized that kind of, yes. I'm just not yes. smart rhetoric, like you were talking about before. Yes. So yeah, sorry. Well, we're going to just I've... be all over the place in this podcast, but it's okay because we, we are both very strongly opinionated people. <laughs> my my suggestion mm-hmm. is to take a book that you love. Yeah. be a little bit higher level than, than he's reading now. And turn it into a play. Yes. Maybe we'll try that. Yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, very nature driven. We do a lot of trying to, that's another thing is he doesn't, he says he doesn't like fiction. He mostly likes to watch and read nonfiction. So we do a lot of things around mountains and volcanoes and like geographical features. (laughs) I can tell you so much about mountains now. And write your own stories. Yes. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you, you've got it. There's so many things you can do and, and make it, yeah, like you said, really creative and really fun and not about memorizing what the ING does at the end. Or, you know, if if when they're older, if they want to learn grammatical terms and, you know, past participles and gerunds and all that, that's great. Like they can learn the names for those things. But I feel like at the beginning, it shouldn't be about phonics necessarily. If it works for some kids, that's great. But I don't want him just sitting there memorizing what groups of letters are supposed to do because they don't do that all the time in English anyway. I would rather that he'd had fun and learn things and yeah, felt build that self-esteem. I always group words. Mm-hmm. I put the words in the context. Yes. Always mm-hmm. in context and write about them. Yeah. You know, yeah. whatever it is, you know, volcano, lava, you know, and whatever you can. And and get the kids to do the thinking and then use lots of pictures, mm-hmm. lots of pictures. I mean, so many the, pictures. <laughs> I mean, that was interesting about Nicholas's learning that the reading teacher was seeing, you know, this snail's pace growth of reading mm-hmm. and, and decoding. And what I was seeing, I actually, Nicholas was seven. I actually thought I was teaching a 12 year old mm-hmm. from his thinking. Yes. And, you know, Nicholas has a problem, like you said. Nicholas's brain is like rocks Mm -hmm. and you know it's thinking and it's rattling and you can see it but but you you know something's going on but you can only see it through the few words he's that are coming out Mm -hmm. and they spin around the the thoughts spin around then you've got to get those thoughts into order into language and then put them in the right order so someone else can understand it Mm -hmm. and that's how long he takes to answer a question so he works it's a lot of work. Yeah. And even today, fascinating, he's sailing, mm-hmm. sailing boats. And he said, I was on a two-person boat. And he said, I found the communication really hard. Mm-hmm. And then I, then he said, and I went out by myself. Oh, and I had so much fun. And it's the communication issue, the thoughts, the thinking. How do I say it? What do I have to say? Mm-hmm. And you can't be slow in those sort of circumstances. Ah. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it's a lifelong problem. It's really hard for autistics. And I, I think uh, often come off as a, I mean, a lot of people don't know I'm autistic from looking at me, which I guess allows me to pass sometimes and offer some privilege. But it's also means that people expect that I'm going to be able to communicate all the time, just like a neurotypical autistic person would. And sometimes I can, but it takes so much energy and I fail so hard sometimes, or it's so exhausting sometimes. Um, and I need so much alone time and recuperative time. And that's another thing. Schools don't offer that to our kids. Um, 
the kids who need more processing time, more recuperative time. So yeah, I have many thoughts and, about school and other ways of doing things other <laughs> yeah. than answering this question or you know alternate, particularly when they're so young. Mm-hmm. Yep, and they can't even communicate. Uh, I can barely communicate what I what I need. <laughs> to be in terms of supports, what I need other people to help me with. And for kids, it's like, you know, I was surprised my eight-year-old could even be like, um, could even really tell me about what he was feeling around reading and what he was feeling around uh, comparing himself to other students. Because most kids, I don't think have, many kids don't have the emotional intelligence or verbal ability to string that kind of high it's high effort. It's highly emotional. It's that metacognition piece is tough for adults, much less eight-year-olds, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> ah, totally agree. Totally yeah. Agree. Yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So you obviously got somewhere with Nicholas and now you work coaching literacy. Is it, how do you frame what you do? You, I feel like you do a lot. I do. Well, <laughs> you work I do in literacy. Lot. You learn. Yeah. Well, what happened to me, you know, I'm teaching mm-hmm. Nicholas and Nicholas eventually gets the label of second percentile speech language impaired mm-hmm. or second percentile developmental language department mm-hmm. and our de- developmental language delay. Okay. Our family moved from Brisbane, Australia to Lubbock, Texas when Nicholas was 11. Mm-hmm. Nicholas went from the bottom to top when we were in Lubbock. And in my book, I identify nine factors that helped him that would not have happened in Brisbane, Australia. Mm-hmm. So that was the start. In Lubbock, one of the first people I meet is a mother whose 13-year-old was non-reading. Mm-hmm. Articulate. Yes. But non-reading, so way better than Nicholas. He'd spent four years in a phonics-only reading program. Wow. And uh, and every day the mother took him out of school to this place mm-hmm. and back again for an hour and a half and came out non-reading. Disgraceful. Mm-hmm. School district paid for it. And I said, I think I know what to do. I The school district paid for me to teach him over the summer. Mm-hmm. I taught him to read. At the end of the summer, he's reading. The mother writes to the school district and said, you employ this woman or I'll see you. <laughs> I get employed. I'm now in touch in the school district with other children who failed reading programs. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me, I'm teaching under ideal circumstances. I'm teaching children who come to me at ages, you know, from 7 to 16 with nothing. Mm-hmm. Teach them to read, Lois. That's your job. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what I did. So I built up my my philosophy through that, through practical work and realising the many pieces that are involved to teach the most vulnerable students. I like to say vulnerable. I don't like to say struggling students, whatever. But they are vulnerable. Yes. And they're vulnerable to a whole variety of pests. Mm-hmm. And, and I was a diagnostic teacher. This is what I have to do. Right. So 
Then, then we move again with my husband and his work. And so now I'm in upstate New York. What do I do? I do my master's. What else? And I can't teach up here. So I wrote my book, Reverse to Memoir. And Nicholas's story to me was always good because mm. he failed first grade. We've got it documented. He graduates high school in the top of his class. He graduates with two undergraduate degrees, one in mathematics and one in engineering. And then he has a PhD, he's, he has a scholarship to do a PhD in applied mathematics. Mm-hmm. What do you want to do, love? I want to write a story. I can't write. Mm-hmm. So I start <laughs> writing and I start going to writing classes and I meet a young lady, it's my son's age, and she said, Lois, I'll help you. And she was affordable and she helped me write my book and get it published. And it was published when Nicholas graduated with his PhD. Wow, that's so fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) And it's my story as well as his story because I'm reflecting on my life and my Mm -hmm. learning and then my teaching. And so that's how it happened. And now I've connected with other people and I've been able to, I didn't ever think I could do a reading program because I individualise it, but I met this guy who does writing and now we've got a reading writing program that we're working on and I'm delighted with it. Because it's for older kids and it's, you know, engagement is critical. Mm -hmm. Letters and sounds are minor. I tell you what you've got to do. (laughs) Next Monday on When Learning is Trauma, we're talking to a lady called Dr. Mary Helen Imordano Yang. And what does she talk about? She talks about emotions and learning and how emotions are a critical component of learning. So what you're doing with your boys in building volcanoes and and talking about whatever you're talking about, the children are relaxed. Yes. The children are engaged. And that's what often doesn't happen in literacy programs. Mm -hmm. We forget that emotional engagement. And that's what turned Nicholas around. And that's what I was going to tell you. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) How How did this when learning is trauma come about? I mean, I, you can read my book, Reverse to Memoir. It tells you most of the things and you can email me, talk to me anytime. Nicholas graduated with his PhD from Oxford University. No one's interested in my story anyway. <laughs> and I said to Nicholas, I'm thinking now, Nick, I can talk to Nicholas. What happened in first grade? Nicholas is confident. He's articulate. He talks to anyone. My son cried Mm -hmm. and not a word emerged from his mouth. And for the very first time, I recognised this is trauma Mm -hmm. we haven't dealt with. And I know I'm guilty. I didn't deal with it because I thought it's over. I didn't have the skills or the knowledge to deal with what happened. Mm -hmm. So, and then I, I thought I can't deal with that now. And I said, Nicholas, well, tell me what happened when you and I learned together in Oxford. Mm-hmm. And it was a transformation. It was the, the sad face went and he's laughing. <laughs> and he said, I remember the poems you wrote me. And he named the poems. Mm-hmm. They and really he, stuck. Yes. <laughs> you know, it was a transformation. And he's relaxed and he's happy. And he, he named the poems and then he said, and the mapping Mm-hmm. The mapping about Captain Cook, well, that's where I learned to love learning. And he said, and I never want to stop learning. 
And then he started to giggle. And he said, and you wrote a poem about a witch's spell and I wrote the witch's ingredients. laughing <laughs> and laughing. And he said, I don't remember what they were. I just remember it being so funny. <laughs> and, you know, and now it's all starting to click in my brain because I didn't write about the witch's spell in my book mm-hmm. because I didn't deem my poem good enough. And I ignored the implications of him and the excitement of writing the the witch's ingredients, the Mm -hmm. ingredients to the spell. And it was, you know, bird poo, three drops, the blood of a dead lizard, alien eyeballs. I mean, (laughs) and what matters is that he was emotionally engaged and connected Mm -hmm. and that learning has lasted him a lifetime. And I didn't know that. Yeah. That connection is such a big piece. Um, And I I feel like that was what was missing for my kids in some of their public school efforts is they get tired, they can't take breaks, the teachers are trying, but there's 20 other students there. And how are they supposed to, yeah, feel connected to the material and to the people and uh, how can you feel connected to phonics? Like there's no emotional engagement in phonics. That's just my opinion. Someone else can yell at me about it. But I just, You've got to do it in a way mm-hmm. that it's connect. Oh, look. <laughs> I read a book. No, I didn't. I waded through a book by Gift Stippering by Briggs Myers. Mm-hmm. And on about a page 130 or something, I've got it here, she says, what do children remember? And she said, you don't remember You struggle with memory when things are isolated, Mm -hmm. abstract and irrelevant and it becomes hard to recall, difficult to recall, impossible, difficult to recall, impossible to remember, takes an inordinate amount of attention to be learned. Mm -hmm. Something to that. What do you remember? You remember what's relevant, connected and related Mm -hmm. and if it's surprising, funny, if surprising, interesting, or funny, it's remembered with no effort at all. That's how I teach. Yeah. So phonics by flashcards, forget it. No. <laughs> and I think of it as a bird's nest. You've got to find a, a, an image for those words, for those sounds. It's easier to remember a sentence than it is a word. It's easier to remember a word than a sound. So you've got to have it all. You've got to have, that's where the poetry comes in. Create the poems and then you've got the vocabulary included in it. Then you've got the rhyming words included in it where you're repeating that sound. Mm-hmm. It's connected, it's relatable, it's relevant. It's perfect. <laughs> it's what you have to do when you're teaching children who are struggling. Mm-hmm. You cannot alienate them and say, you just have to learn it. No, that won't get you anywhere. No. No. That's what we do. That's a more shut down child. That's what we do, Mm -hmm. yeah. And the poetry, like my poetry, it takes on a world of its own Mm -hmm. because engagement, we forget that engagement is critical in learning to read. Mm -hmm. Critical. And if we don't have engagement, and with engagement you have emotion. Yep. And Nicholas, 25 years later, you still got him laughing about something we did when he was seven Mm -hmm. 
And you know, it's and then, really amazing. Yeah. yeah. And I've t- talked to a number of my students as adults, and you know, my students they were old, thirteen and fourteen, and failed. And my first student, he spoke and he said, you know, I don't. She doesn't know what she's getting. I don't think she'll be able to do it. <laughs> no one else can. Why is she going to be able to make a difference? Mm-hmm. And I did. And I did. Yeah. I think there's a real lack of interest in making reading fun. I feel like a lot of teachers say, well, once you're reading, then you have access to all these books and isn't that exciting and all this stuff. But if you don't have the perspective of someone who's struggling, then you can't, a lot of people aren't creative enough to come up with a way to make it interesting and fun and exciting for the child. Because the average child learns to read with relatively relative ease, mm-hmm. we try and just do more of that for the kids who are down the bottom and it doesn't work. Yeah. And they have the philosophy of in grades one to three, three you learn to read and from grades three onward you read to learn. Mm-hmm. That is a fallacy. The moment children are learning to read is the moment they are reading to learn. Absolutely. And words are connected to to meaning mm-hmm. words are meaningful and if we don't connect it with meaning we're talking a foreign language absolutely yeah I think that for my especially for my non nonfiction, and he's not a reader yet he's working on it but he his idea and kind of that autistic straightforwardness again but for him Words have to be linked to real yes. life, practical, yes, like physical things. He doesn't want yes. to read about dragons and unicorns and yes. magic. Yes. And that's just him. He wants to read about Kilimanjaro. He wants to yes. read about K4, it's yes. his favorite mountain. Uh, yes. he, he wants real, um, yes. real practical things. And that's what words are for, for him. Words are for knowing the universe better. And if he can't do that with them, then what's the point? There's no point. He won't do it. I'm sure you always have a map. Yes. 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 He's very interested in geography. And we live in Colorado. We're right by the front range of the mountains. He's memorized the names of the mountains. He can recognize, you know, difficultly named mountains. And it still doesn't know a lot of sight words because he's much more motivated, which is fine. Uh, That's not a judgment. He's much more motivated to learn the names of the mountains. It means something to him. It's valuable to him. You know, of course he's going to remember those. So, yeah, I just, I think we have very similar viewpoints. Well, you know, I, I just move heaven and earth. I really try hard to teach my kids to read. Mm. Yeah. No, because it's. Sometimes I'm more successful than others. I rarely fail, but when I do, I'm hurt. Oh, of course. <laughs> I failed. I mm-hmm. failed. <laughs> you know, so. Reading's so valuable. It can give you so much. It's, of course, we want our kids to learn if they can, you know, and most kids can. So yeah. it's a struggle. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I, my big deal, and I was looking here, what I've, you know, what I said was how mindset impacts so much. Yes. And, and that's the critical part. We, oh, that child's autistic or that child's this or that or the other, you know. We have to give 
we have to give our kids more time mm-hmm. and we have to believe they are teachable. It tells you when, with Nicholas in particular, mm-hmm. the worst child I've seen in 20 years of teaching, that's the mindset. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I took her words and I, after that, I thought one day those words will come back to bite you. Mm-hmm. I didn't say it, but I certainly thought I didn't know now how. And no way in the world did I expect Nicholas to get a PhD. Yes, that's a huge achievement. Yeah. Huge. To read and to write. And and what you were saying before about we're slow in thinking. Mm -hmm. Nicholas had accommodations, but the accommodation was to give him support with writing and they in Oxford they do an oral examination. Mm -hmm. And he had support to do that in that he was given practice. Yes. And what they did was said, this is the question, Nicholas, and when they ask a question, you have to repeat back, is this what you mean? Mm -hmm. And so he practised that skill. And that was another huge component. Mm -hmm. But people still judge him today because he is slow with his thinking. And his wife, he's now married, his wife says, you can see people just think, oh, that man's dumb. Mm -hmm. Because he's slow with some responses. Yeah. But, you know, Nicholas's knowledge, his wide range of knowledge just astonishes me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know where he's picked it up or where he's got it from (laughs) somewhere. But, you know, he's got it. He can do it. Mm -hmm. Amazing. I think that people who communicate quickly and easily don't realize what a struggle it is for those of us who just don't have that talent or ability. It just takes so much work. So I really hear that. Yeah. Yeah. I think what I was thinking was that earlier in the interview, you were talking about, and I, I can't remember how you worded it now, but you were talking about the framing between whether, oh, you said deficit. You said whether we are looking at uh, the child is failing due to something about the child or whether the teacher is failing or the education system is failing due to something about the way that they're approaching the child. And I was thinking about that in terms of autism too and other um, neurodivergences because we often talk about a very similar issue where um, often in the disability world, a disabled person is looked at as a person who is failing, but actually what is usually happening is that the society is failing us in some way, right? We don't have the accommodations we need. We don't have, and that's sort of what's happening maybe with Nicholas as well, is that, you know, if, (laughs) if this was an inclusive, accessible world, people would be aware of and have more knowledge around people communicating in different ways, people taking more time to process. Um, And Instead, what's happening is that individuals like me, or maybe like your son and others, um, are seen as less intelligent or at fault in some way. Um, But it's just a lack of, it's just ableism. It's just a lack of inclusivity, (laughs) you know, around um, our abilities, because we are just as often just as able with accommodations, with supports. Um, It's just, we don't do it the same way as, you know, the traditional person does. Um, and that's so frustrating. It's so frustrating. And I just, yeah, I don't know. My mother-in-law so. was in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. She was as smart as a whip. She's in a wheelchair and we had to get on a bus mm-hmm. and we were asking about the bus. The bus driver ignored her and talked to me. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's, 
<laughs> it goes it goes across <sighs> multiple spectrums. Yes, it? yes, yes. <laughs> Ableism hurts lots of different people in lots of different ways, and certainly. But I feel like reading is maybe not like the wheelchair example is a really great example of very obvious, you know, ageism yes. and ableism. Whereas the literacy example for me, I think a lot of people wouldn't immediately pin that to, you know, an ableism, uh, thinking somebody cannot do something like that. Um, it's a little bit more, it's harder to see. It's a little sneakier yes. almost. So yes. yeah, just to point it out as a way of, the framing is so important. And that, that has to do with your, your um, comment about mindset, right? That uh, in, a, in a bigger way, if we're bringing, we need to be bringing a, a mindset of inclusivity and diversity I, into when reading. I speak, mm-hmm. I, when I speak to teachers, I say to them, instead of seeing that child as learning disabled, see them as future rocket scientists. Yes, and and say that to the child, you know, so that and it switches your mindset just a bit. Yes. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but many people, even right up until third or fourth, third grade in Australia, we had wonderful classroom teachers in second grade and third grade, mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, but he was still seen as slow. Yes. And Nicholas says to me, I wasn't good at anything mm-hmm. in third grade in, in primary school elementary school I wasn't good at anything and it took him really to love it to really shine and to find his niche and to find things that he was better at than anyone else Mm -hmm. but um you know it it sticks with you and then there's your trauma yeah and you have to deal with it as Mm -hmm. an adult Mm -hmm. we have to deal with it absolutely I think that education in the early years really needs to be much more about building skills and less about memorizing. <laughs> and because I think so many kids are building their self-esteem in those early years. So that's that's where your your uh, root of your self-esteem and your knowledge of yourself and your trust in yourself comes from. And if you're in a situation in school or in your family where you're being told or people around you are thinking that you're not capable, then of course you're going to internalize that. And of course you're going to be traumatized from it. And it's going to affect the whole rest of your life in lots of ways. And I, I just feel like you can always catch up on memorizing facts. And even with reading, you have 16 year olds who can learn to read, right? You can catch up on that stuff. It's not ideal, but you can do it. But the build rebuilding broken self-esteem is something that's so much harder to do in my experience. Yes. So yeah, yeah. it it doesn't take much to trigger Mm -hmm. something else that, you know, that had happened earlier on Mm -hmm. that hadn't been acknowledged. Yes. Oh, you're so right. I think we've got to do more writing. I agree <laughs> with you. You know, I, I think that those early years and pushing kids to speed up and, and get to this level by your time, your age eight or nine. Mm-hmm. Why? I don't know. <laughs> it's not, I'm not the person who can defend that. I just don't think it makes any sense at all. From when I was in school to, you know, educating my children now as, a, as an unschooler, I really don't understand the rush on a lot of that stuff. Um, I think there's other things that are more important. So, yeah. yeah. And build background knowledge, Mm -hmm. build in it to it, a love of learning, you know, whatever that be. Yep. Connect experience because, you know, learning is built on experience. Mm -hmm. What you're seeing, what you're hearing. And we know children from low socioeconomic 
background have a lower experience. You know, we've got to expand that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that's what schools could be doing instead of, yeah, the drills. Ramming, and the, ramming. Yep. Oh, my, I just. I completely agree. Because <laughs> that's what I did. That's what we did with Nicholas. And I didn't realise that's what we were doing. Yep. And, I'm, and I'm, I've got to write about another bit, you know, because Nicholas, I'll never forget, we were. I was in the kitchen and I let Nicholas out of our lessons for about half an hour earlier one day and he was in the lounge room and he switched on the TV to BBC Two mm-hmm. and it was a history channel he had on. We were in England and then the next thing I hear is, Mum, 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 you've got to come, you've got to come. <laughs> and Nicholas is calling me. <laughs> and it was a picture of a place that we had visited. Oh, wow. And it, was, and it was the history of the place mm-hmm. and the the scribes that were writing there and what they were doing. And then it went into showing the printing of the Bible, of the Gutenberg Bible. And, and Nicholas's mind just went, ah! <laughs> And how that all interacted with the mapping. Yes. Because the mapping required printing mm-hmm. to bring the Ptolemy map to life in the 1450s mm-hmm. and they needed things to print. Oh, we've got to print this. And that's how Columbus got hold of it. Yeah. I mean, it was just so interconnected. It was that's just amazing. staggering. All these interconnections that happen. And once children start to see that, the lights start to go on in all directions. There's so many skills associated with that. Just like, yeah. yeah. And I don't know. I the, One of the main comments I hear from people who are not, who worry about unschooling is, well, how will they learn? language arts if they're only interested in volcanoes or whatever how how can you connect this thing to this other thing there's always a way to connect the one thing to the other thing everything is interconnected in ways you could never even imagine just the more you learn about a topic the more you realize how entwined it is with everything else going on and i i think i think sharing that with our kids and bringing that to light and just helping them notice that will do so much in the way of education just by itself like you don't you don't have to be sitting there drilling with most kids you they'll get it like it's there in the world <laughs> filling out so, worksheets yes oh no let's just go you you know let's just go on a we went apple picking the other day do you know how much we could talk about <laughs> seasonality how plants grow about weather about you know about genetics about you could do anything with that so yeah i get very excited <laughs> The language you're using mm-hmm. with the children, mm-hmm. you know, and that is all, that is so critical. That is so important. Yeah. Yep. Widening their world. And again, you're connecting it. Oh, yeah. Danielle. And the, <laughs> I think the more experiential stuff you do too, the more likely you are as an adult to use broader language, right? If you're in the classroom every day, of course, you're going to be talking about the same things and there's something to be said for routine. But if you're going out into the world and experiencing things, your vocabulary is going to be broad. And so your children are going to develop broader vocabulary as well and, you know, make more connections among things. And it's just, I just, I feel very passionately about experiential learning. So, yeah. And you've got them in a relaxed state of mind. Mm-hmm. Brain is ready to learn. They're much more likely to be, yes, yes. They're much more likely to actually take it in and remember it later. And, you know, like you said, I'm really excited, honestly, in 20 years to ask my kids 
what do you remember about this? Because I, I expect it will be completely different than the things that I've happened to hang on to. And uh, it's just, it's funny what they catch and what's, what I feel is the most important versus what they feel is the most important. Even when we debrief after a field trip and figuring out, you know, oh, they thought this was really interesting, but I was completely over here, you know, with this other thing. It's so cool. It's so cool. Oh, well, yeah. No, it was such a relief to see Nicholas doing well. Mm -hmm. Such a relief because the prognosis, the prognosis was so bad. But when you look at what he could, what he can do and what he did, you realize that's the brain they left behind. Mm -hmm. They just assumed he wouldn't be able to. Yeah. And, and that's, that's so important. Yeah. You know, he can do things with mathematics that, that the vast majority of these people on the planet haven't got a clue about. Mm-hmm. I'm one of them, so I can. Oh, me too. <laughs> you know, that's why we have to teach children to read from all backgrounds because we don't know what we're leaving behind. Mm. Thank you so, so, so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation and I'm so excited to get this out to folks. So thank you for having me, Danielle. I'm delighted to be here. You can find me on Twitter, Let, at Letchford Lois, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, and on doing a little bit more on Instagram. Please buy my book, Reverse the Memoir, read it, write a review, share it with others, particularly with educators. Yes. Thank you so much. Go buy her book. I'm going to buy it. I didn't yet because I was stuck on the YouTube channel, but that's next on my list because it's going to be good. I know it. I'm really excited. So it's fun. Lovely. Thank you. Does your father know you're listening to this podcast? Well, when you're done, why don't you stop by and check out a show that is 100% dad-approved, Dadages. Hi there, I'm Chad Higgle. If you're looking for useful insights and practical advice you can actually apply to work, family, education, philanthropy, and just life in general, check out Dadages. That's D-A-D-A-G-E-S, wherever you listen to your podcasts.